When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Kai Wortmann, working in philosophy of education at the University of Tübingen in Germany. And I'm here today with Bernard Harcourt, who is a professor of law and professor of political science at Columbia University in New York. We want to talk about his new book, Critic and Praxis, A Critical Philosophy of Illusions, Values, and Action. In this book... Bernard focuses on the possibility and necessity of social critique as a praxis. Um, hi, Bernard. I must confess that the book looked quite daunting to me. It was big, heavy, a dark black cover, almost 700 pages. And I, I, I uh, had a look in the content and counted the names of the critical theory giants. It was 17 names in the, in the content alone. But when I opened the book and actually started reading, um, I was really surprised how accessible and also intellectually stimulating the writing is. Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it. So I'm really happy to have you here. Bernard, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Kai. It's, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm delighted to be here because the book is, is intended to open conversations, uh, not close them, uh, and open a whole world, really, of critical theory and praxis. So I'm delighted to be with you. Before talking about the book, can you maybe start off by saying a little bit about your background? So what brought you into critical theory? Right, right. Well, I really have a, a kind of a, a mixed background or, or multiple different backgrounds that, uh, that collided uh, in my younger years um, and, that, and that collide uh, in this book. Uh, one 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 of my backgrounds is that I've uh, early on I became a, an attorney and I started to represent people on death row uh, down in Alabama in uh, the southern part of the United States and um, I did that early on I I, I worked with a, a wonderful attorney small set of lawyers worked with Brian Stevenson who's uh, at at a, at a, at a at a small office, it was a public interest office that's now called the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. And um, I was really engrossed in those death penalty cases and in that representation. And and I've never I've never left that. I, I continued uh, even as I went into the academy uh, later on and continued with my cases and and still today uh, represent folks who are on death row in Alabama. And, and other places. So that was one way in which I got kind of brought to this work. The, the other was more theoretical. Um, I, I studied political theory. I was um, really taken by notions of, of, of critical theory, questions of punishment and, and political economy. I worked with a, an extraordinary political theorist when I was uh, younger uh, Sheldon Wolin, and uh, and and decided to return to that area and to explore it more and to and to really mine critical theory. So so I ended up getting a PhD uh, under the supervision of uh, Sheila Ben Abib, who is a brilliant uh, critical theorist uh, trained in the Frankfurt School, and 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 eventually um, my my theoretical research focused and then developed uh, the work of Michel Foucault on prisons and punishment. 
and I gradually became an editor of uh, Michel Foucault's work. Uh, and I was uh, fortunate enough to edit his lecture series on the punitive society and his lecture series on um, penal theories and institutions. And, and I was fortunate enough to edit the, uh, his book, A Discipline and Punish, uh, Surveiller et Punir for the French Gallimard edition uh, of the um, complete works. And so it was really mostly those two backgrounds that, that collided and came together. And so uh, my work on the death penalty, actually representing uh, people on death row or, or, or now uh, someone at Guantanamo Bay, con- coming into kind of complete confrontation and, and clash with my theoretical work on, on Foucault, on Discipline and Punish, which, of course, as you know, opens with that famous scene of the torturous execution of Damien in uh, 1757. And, and it's that confrontation of practice and theory that really has driven uh, my, my ambitions, my life, uh, and, and that drives this work, uh, critique and praxis. I, I uh, must confess that Discipline and Punish was a great formative reading in, uh, during my studies. And in a sense, I can also um, relate the, the style of your writing to, to Foucault's, uh, since you also employ a, a very nice mix of theoretical analysis, personal reflections, and in your book also examples from fictional literature, which I also really enjoyed uh, reading. Um, and I, thought, I, I really struggled how to deal with a 600-pages book in, in one hour. And I thought uh, that one way of staying true to the book is being a bit critical of critique and offering uh, you thereby the opportunity to position yourself within the variety of critical theory and also relate to, to praxis. Because I thought that uh, really one of your... Oh, now I'm already giving away the, the point of the book. But one point I, I thought that you were making very st strongly in the book was that uh, emphasis on uh, praxis that is not only uh, theoretical. Right, right. Yeah, I think, I, think, I think you're right to start from the critique of critical theory in a way. <laughs> Um, from, from taking a critical position to critical theory. And that is where the book began, um, with, with a certain dissatisfaction or frustration with the abstract and kind of excessively theoretical at, at times or too highly philosophical and unrelated to the world, uh, that, that much critical theory uh, became towards the end of the 20th century. As it retreated from the public sphere, I would say, to the academy. Um, you know, critical theory was, I mean, well, there, critical theory itself, it, there are different People define it in different ways, trace it in different ways, and, and trace its origin to different times. Um, in its very kind of narrow sense, critical theory with a big C and a big T is often associated with the Frankfurt School and uh, Horkheimer and Adorno, uh, and then eventually Habermas. Um, I, I try to draw a wider lineage and a... Um, a more copious notion of critical theory that, that really finds its roots in the 19th century uh, with uh, Marx and, and Nietzsche, which are, who are uncomfortable uh, bedfellows and, of course, very much in tension and in conflict. But earlier in the 19th century and then more generous and copious in the 20th century to include uh, thinkers like Deleuze or thinkers like Foucault Uh, or eventually Derrida. So uh, not to limit critical theory to the you know, post-Marxist uh, turn in the 
20s and 30s, but to really speak about it copiously, to include uh, queer theory and, and critical race theory and post-colonial theory in, in the mix. But, when, but even when I do that, and so in trying to make it as contemporary and relevant as possible today, it really does feel that critical theory did retreat to a, a high form of kind of philosophical and aesthetic uh, pristineness uh, as it kind of retreated into the academy. And so whereas it was more part of public discourse in the mid 20th century, I think towards the end of the 20th century, it really became uh, the, the, the language and the rhetoric of uh, certain uh, highly theorized uh, works in, in the university, uh, whether it was in a department of rhetoric or in, in a department of English. Um, and, um, and it became less, it became less uh, accessible uh, very jargony, uh, much and, and, and hard to understand really. And also very distant from kind of the material, uh, on the ground efforts of trying to transform, uh, the world, to change the world and make it more just and, and, uh, and, and, and equitable and, and more social justice. And so, so I think that the book itself comes from a critique uh, of uh, of uh, of critical theory, and um, and uh, and 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 reflects that in very much. It's very much a conversation with the direction that the Frankfurt School took. It's very much a, a conversation with the direction that critical theory took in the work of Michel Foucault. And other post-structuralists and, and post-colonial thinkers, and what I try to do uh, in the work is return to the origins of the critical impulse, uh, which I would argue is about changing the world, and um, and to try to tease out how we would, in fact. Uh, use a critical lens to help us in our critical praxis, in, in the ways in which we're trying to transform the world. And that's precisely where the legal advocacy that I've done and the, and the activism and the organizing on the, on the legal side uh, comes into conversation with the theoretical work of critical theory. Um, to a certain extent, I, I was always dissatisfied with the idea that critical theory itself or engaging in critical thought could be a form of praxis itself. I always thought that that was too limited. It wasn't enough. It's not enough, I, I feel, for us in the academy or even slightly beyond the academy to... Uh, to, 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 to have a sense that we are, in fact, engaging in praxis when we are engaging in critical theory. That seems to me to be not enough. Writing books is not enough. Uh, uh, thinking, engaging in analyses of crisis is not enough. It's, it's an important, it's a necessary foundation, but it itself is not enough. And so what this book does from that and a critical perspective on critical theory is to try to develop a way to, to engage in practices, critical practices that are informed by critical theory or that are in conversation or in contrast or in confrontation with critical theory. And, um, and that, and, and, and that is really what I do in the book. And it pushed me in a certain direction uh, in the sense that uh, originally, um, I thought that the question to ask at the end of the day is, you know, what is to be done in the famous tradition of um, of activist thought? You know, what is to be done? But I realized as a result of 
the confrontation with critical theory, with critical thinkers, such as post-colonial thinkers, such as Edward Said or Gayatri Chakravorty Spivak and others, with Foucault uh, himself and his turn to practices of the self, uh, uh, with uh, the confrontation with queer theory and Judith Butler's work, it, it, it became clear to me that it was not possible anymore for anyone from a critical praxis perspective to be telling others what is to be done. And so ultimately, I turn the question on its head and I ask, what more am I to do? Now, in the process then of this kind of confrontation of critical theory and critical praxis and, and, and raising the question, what more am I to do? It becomes more self-reflexive. It becomes uh, more engaged with um, my own uh, interventions, my own work, whether it's on the death penalty or at Guantanamo or Standing Rock. Uh, and, and it becomes an analysis of how one should think through, right? How I should think through my own actions and my own practices uh, in order to render them more, uh, not just more effective, but uh, more true to uh, the ambition of, of transforming the world and pushing it in a direction of solidarity and equality and social justice. So that's how I would um, kind of phrase it in, in response to your question. It grew out of a critique uh, of critical theory, but it retains or it tries to rebuild a conception of critical theory, which I talk about through this theory of illusions, to rebuild that in order to make it uh, more uh, directly in conversation with uh, critical praxis. So one common strand of critique uh, of uh, critical theory is that critical theory has an overly negative vocabulary. And you just said it's it's not about telling other people's, the people what to do. But I wonder whether... Um, for example, the notion of illusion, which is also in the title of the book, has this kind of um, break with the view of, of normal people. Um, since the uh, critical theorists, of course, has a kind of deeper insight into uh, the illusion of the uh, other people. Uh, right. How would you respond to that? Yeah. Okay, so you're raising two really important questions in there, and I, I want to make sure I address them both. I mean, one is the question of the negative or the negativity of a critical theory. And then the other is this question of kind of the expertise of critical theory. In other words, does it is it is it something that, you know, you, you only an elite has access to Uh, the critique and the notion of illusion that befuddles all of the masses. So let me let me let me take those separately because I think they raise different and important issues. Um, the first is the question of negativity. So I mean, is critique uh, the, the, one of the one of the criticisms of critical theory? One of the criticisms of critique is that it is founded on and does nothing more than kind of negate, than uh, criticize, than critique uh, particular efforts, including efforts to make the world uh, better, right? It's, it, oftentimes it's associated with this move of um, the, the, um, the, the kind of the unintended bad consequences of uh, someone trying to help in, the, in a situation. So negativity and the notion of negation is very important in uh, critical theory, but I, but I think that it's important to understand that it's one moment in, that in one moment in what tends to be the critical uh, moves. So generally, and, and in part, um, negativity is so important because of the 
Hegelian and dialectical origins of a lot of critical theory. Now, a, a lot of critical theory. I mean, so, you know, De, Deleuze, for instance, who I would argue is, is at, at the heart of critical theory, uh, turns to Nietzsche rather than Marx and Hegel. And in part, his work is anti dialectical. I mean, it's a rejection of the dialectic. So rejection of this idea of, you know, negation and then overcoming uh, that is tied to the Hegelian dialectic. Or um, indeed, in the case of Adorno, staying negative as long as you can. So not even aiming at overcoming. Right, right, right. And and exactly. So, so, so I think that so, so you're, you're pointing to this notion of kind of pure negativity in in Adorno, um, and um, which was the which what he was what would he called the negative dialectic. So not even getting beyond the negation to the point of overcoming. Um, so, so there, it's definitely true that a lot of critical theory is steeped in that, and and some, as you just mentioned, stays there. Um, but I would say that, um, I would say that, uh, there are ways to think through, uh, critical theory that do involve, uh, not necessarily a Hegelian overcoming, but a, a, a constructive element to it. Now it's, it's often those constructive elements that, 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 get criticized, um, but I think that they can be a, an integral part of uh, critical theory. So let me give you an example, and that it, that has to do with uh, uh, Du Bois's work, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, whose work, particularly on the notion of abolition democracy, uh, is so important today. Uh, particularly in the United States with all of the abolitionist movements and all of our thinking about abolition democracy. Now, he, he developed that term in a book, Black Reconstruction in America, that was published in 1935. And that notion of abolition democracy was essentially a, a notion that depended on negation Uh, which was the negation of slavery, the elimination, the abolition of slavery. But what Du Bois argued was that abolition alone was not sufficient and that that negative moment had to be accompanied by the creation of new institutions and new practices and new ways of thinking and new ways of being that would put the persons who had formerly been enslaved in a position to be full members of uh, a democracy. And so uh, in Du Bois's work, the notion of abolition or what he called abolition democracy is tied to that first element of negation, which is emancipation, the elimination of slavery, but requires at the same time the formulation of, of new ways of being and, and all kinds of institutions of education, uh, for voting, Uh, for economics and uh, for uh, jobs and work, etc., and labor, uh, all kinds of institutions that were absolutely necessary in order to guarantee the ambition of the negation, right? In other words, abolishing slavery, that negative moment, was not enough that was the whole point of his book, Black Reconstruction in America, that it was just not enough. There had to be uh, this second moment of creation of institutions. I would argue a third moment of a transformation of political economy uh, that without those, the negation just it replicates itself. And that was, of course, Du Bois's point. Slavery, which was abolished, replicated and reproduced itself in the forms of Jim Crow um, when there wasn't the kind of positive moment and the constructive moment associated with the negation. So I think that that's, that's a good example, for instance, of why critical theory does not need to be only negative. 
Um, it, it, I, it's, it's true that uh, on certain, in certain strands, uh, particular, particularly Adorno, even sometimes Foucault, uh, there's this idea that, um, that, that critical theory should, should, should not participate in the reconstructive project. I think that's, I think that's, that's, that's an illusion. <laughs> that's an illusion. <laughs> it's an illusion because um, it assumes that the first act, the negativity itself is not a constructive act. Right. Um, and so, and so, um, so, so I, 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 I really confront, there's this passage where Foucault says, uh, he, he's asked in an interview, what do we do, you know, after critique? And he says, well, you know, you can't, you, you, you can't, you, you have to stop at critique because uh, the moment you go further, the moment you start to propose things, you're starting to propose uh, relations of power, you are starting to kind of, you are starting to rebuild forms of domination. And, you know, that, I think that's, that's, that's wrong. That was wrong because the critique itself is a, is a proposal. It is a construction. In other words, what objects we decide to criticize are themselves, that is a choice. And in that choice, we are effectively already reconstructing, not just negating, we're already reconstructing. Um, so, so in that sense, on the, on the first question, on the question of negativity, I would say um, it, it's a fair criticism of certain ways of engaging in critical theory, but it's something I think that we need to overcome <laughs> in a way. Uh, can, I, can I just yeah, yeah, go thank ahead. you for, for uh, saying that? Because I got really angry at Foucault when I read this precise passage, right. when he said that we need to stay Uh, critical and proposing something is already participating in in the in the yeah you know, it's already participating of the bad exactly uh, right yeah. yeah 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 and and in, when in i relate words, this yeah go ahead when, yeah. when i relate this to to my own field the field of education mm -hmm. i i feel like um um to make it very concrete when the when the critical um, academic goes into schools and looks around and says, uh, well, this is bad and that is also bad and you're only reproducing uh, the inequalities of society and also teachers are uh, uh, in principle racist. Mm -hmm. um, th th there is, they, they risk to lose their function also as intellectuals to provide a minimal account of orientation and guidance and propose something to move forward and not only to say what goes wrong. Right, right. And it's clear that when those critiques are being made, there are conceptions of justice that are embedded in them. In other words, it's not possible to simply, it's not possible to criticize without having particular values that are part of the critique. And that's why, and that's why I, I argue that we need to return to those values, those values that are at the heart of the tradition of critical theory, really. Um, so values of solidarity, values of equality, values of social justice, um, because they're embedded in the critical moment And of course, in that critical moment is embedded a, a, a vision, uh, a better vision of society, and one that we need to be, as critical theorists, working on, right? I mean, that, that's the, 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 the effort of critical theory and praxis is not simply the deconstructive moment of taking things apart using our values. But it's, but it has to be, and 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 it is necessarily part because that that first part is the is part of trying to change the world and transform the world. I, um, I love that because you're. Am I am I getting you right? Because I, as I understand you now, you're saying not only Foucault was wrong or it was problematic what he said, but you also make the claim that, in a sense, he 
he was wrong about his own critical practice. So he yes. gave a kind of um, illusionary description of his own uh, way of writing, but also, of course, political engagement in the world. Right. Yeah. Now, um, you know, he's an, he's an interesting figure because um, he said those things, but at the same time, he was doing different things and engaging in praxis, particularly, so this is particularly around the time of uh, Discipline and Punish, which is published in 1975. Um, but the years leading to Discipline and Punish were for him very activist years. In 1970, 1971, he helps found, but a, a leaderless organization. So um, although he helps found it, the idea of it was that it wouldn't have founders, uh, but he and and a few others founded this uh, organization called the Prison Informations Group, the GIP, the Groupe d'Information sur les Prisons. And it was intended to be an, an, a vehicle for persons in prison to be heard, essentially. And, and, and it involved, it, it, it engaged in a lot of organizing work, uh, trying to get uh, surveys into prisons, trying to get surveys out of prison, which was very difficult at the time uh, in France. It was impossible. The walls of the prison were, were much less porous uh, than they are today with, you know, cell phones and, uh, and whatnot. But it was impossible to actually get into the prison and to get words out of the prison uh, because everything was so highly policed at the time. But this, his, his activism, his organizing and his work were very, uh, constructive but but it's important to understand that they were constructive in a particular way actually his work on the prison to me is a bit of a model of the way one might want to think about the conflict between theory and praxis um, and uh, let me just discuss that for a minute I, I realize it's a bit of a digression because I also wanted to get to your other the second part of the question, which was about uh, elitism. So I'll come to that later, but let me just follow this thread. Um, he was originally invited to conduct or to preside over a popular tribunal um, the, in the same way that uh, Jean-Paul Sartre had presided over a popular tribunal in northern France, um, in Lens. It was, it was, they, were, they were putting on trial, the mining industry uh, that um, that was sacrificing lives, the lives of miners. And so they, they put together a popular trial and Sartre was kind of the prosecutor and the judge and whatnot and, 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 and speaking very much for everyone and judging very much. And Foucault was invited by Daniel Rancière and other Maoists, young Maoists, to have a popular tribunal of uh, the prison system. This is 1970. It's early still. Today, in a country like the United States, we have mass incarceration, 2.3 million people. I mean, just inordinate numbers of persons uh, caught in, in cages in the mesh in America. But at the time, in 1970, there, there wasn't mass incarceration in the U.S. or in France, but it was, it was beginning to be an issue, and there was a huge repression of the Maoists in France, and 200 Maoists had been uh, incarcerated. And so he was asked to, to run a popular tribunal. And he, and he, he, he was like, his, his response was, well, I'm, I, I do, I, this is an important issue. I need to get involved, but it's not going to be through a popular tribunal. Instead, it's going to be through this device where the idea is for us to let the prisoners be heard themselves. Now, you'll notice, of course, that's intimately tied to his work on discourse analysis, on the way in which he was studying the way we speak, what gets heard, how discourses are, um, are conveyed, uh, how, how the mad is portrayed, for instance. Um, and, uh, and, and it was precisely from that methodological, theoretical perspective uh, that Foucault did not want to be the speaker for the prisoners, right? And, um, and instead, he wanted to create a vehicle, this prison informations group, 
whereby the prisoners themselves could be heard, their requests, their desires, what, what they, what was important to them. And so that was the process that it went. But you have to see, of course, that is a confrontation and, and resolution in part of, of theory and praxis, right? It, it, it was a, a very, he took a very hard look, a hard examination at how he felt his own praxis uh, should uh, move forward. Um, and not simply by using the traditional devices that have been used, but by incorporating the critique of discourse, of who gets heard. The jeep uh, dissolves uh, the day that the prisoners began to form their own uh, committee, the CAP, the, uh, it was the Prisoners Action Committee. Basically, it was formed by prisoners. The moment that they were able to form their own committee, uh, the jeep dissolves because the whole purpose of it was in a way to, to create a space for the prisoners to be heard. And so that's a good example, of course. Now, now, so just to say, you know, there, there are times when I think Foucault responded in ways that weren't actually necessarily faithful to what he was doing himself. Right. So when he says, you know, after critique, no, we can't do anything. We can't propose anything. Well, you know, he was actually, he was involved in a lot of uh, activity and activism himself. And he was proposing things. But you're entirely right, Kai, that even the initial critical impulse is itself proposing something uh, because it's founded on particular uh, values and it's founded on a particular vision of society. And so, um, so it proposes, but, but I, I honestly believe, and that's the point and the, the whole purpose of this book is to push us more to engage in the kind of thought that does involve uh, uh, proposing and constructing with the idea, right, that we're going to, we're going to, we're going to err. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to ultimately reproduce other illusions that are going to have bad consequences. But we have to accept that. And that's why, in part, the, the critical theory part of it, or the theoretical part of it, is a theory of illusion. What I call a theory of illusions, by which I mean a theory of the um, inevitability of producing illusions as one engages in the act of unveiling illusions. And, and that's very important to me. Um, this idea that, um, that we need to be we need to be proposing, as we propose, we will be effectively reconstructing certain illusions that we will need to critique later. But we can't let that stop us. That can't let us. That can't. That can't let us stop us from proposing, uh, and from moving forward, and from really trying to change the world, even if we are undoubtedly going to be making errors uh, on that path. Um, so, so quickly to to get back to the question of elitism, and to a certain extent, which which was a critique, uh, the second part of the question you were asking, and it is a critique of critical theory, it, it, this idea that, well, only a few uh, anointed intellectuals, say, uh, have the ability to see the, 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 the truth or uh, that there are illusions, whereas the, the mass of ordinary uh, persons are just uh, kind of blinded by uh, this, uh, blinded by these illusions. Um, you know, which is a, a critique of the theories of ideology, uh, in a way. Uh, I think there, that's why I would say we need to render the work accessible to all. That's why, that's why, that's why this book is a, is a criticism of the way in which critical theory became too effete became too sophisticated, became too aestheticized, became too highly theorized or so philosophically uh, at such heights of deconstructive work that 
that that that few people and when with so much jargon that few people could understand what was going on the basic impulse is not is it should not be unfamiliar the basic impulse here is to try to lift the veils of illusions that mislead us right and one 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 of those that i've spent years working on is this illusion of the free market um the idea that there could be free markets that regulate our economic exchange in an in an equilibrium um and that if we don't do anything if the government doesn't do anything then just you know supply and demand will make it such that everything works out fine and when there's a little bit too much demand the price will go up when there's less the price will go down but everything will work out perfectly as long as the government doesn't do anything and and i've spent years challenging that idea because it 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 rests on this fundamental illusion that there could be a space that is unregulated that's that's a complete illusion there are no spaces and the government in order to create quote unquote free markets the government is always extremely active to create these now i think that that idea i call it an illusion but what i would say is it's a way of thinking about the world that is common to most of us common to many in western neoliberal uh, industrialized societies but it's essentially it's essentially misleading and it results in policies that are detrimental uh, to justice and equality now i think i don't i don't think it's a question of being elitist or expertise i think it's something that anyone can understand once we start talking about it uh once we start uh really having full exchanges over it and so what i'd like to think is that critical theory doesn't need to be elitist or uh you know rest on such expertise but it can just depend on more frank exchange and conversation um in the in the way in which maybe paolo freire uh, a great educator who of course plays such a great role in your uh, universe of education theory um tried to suggest that you know knowledge is not something that is possessed by some and given to others but it's something that uh we we all have and that can 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 kind of thrive when we are given opportunities to exchange on equal footing uh with respect and dignity uh for each other so um so that's how i think i would i, I would respond to the the second conventional critique which is that this is an elitist enterprise where only certain people have the knowledge that that i think is entirely wrong um and 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 but but i think that a, a theory of illusions where we we are cognizant of their repetition the fact that there will be uh, again and again different kind of misleading uh, ideas uh is 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 something that can be much more on common ground Uh, as long as we do have uh, more uh, common discussion frank discussion open communication um and exchange um so hopefully that's uh helpful uh with those criticisms can i quickly yeah. follow on 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 this because yeah. um i'm i'm really interested in the in the modus of critique and you just said that um the 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 way the, um, to speak about illusions is lifting the veil and and my question really is is that strategically a a good way of talking <laughs> uh, of 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 conducting these open exchanges wouldn't it be more um equal if if we if we don't say th this is an illusion and uh please um 
follow me in seeing that it is only an illusion, but more saying that, look, this is this is another way of seeing it. Don't you think that that this is more accurate or more it serves your interest also politically <laughs> better than 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 this description so the, the, I, i'm coming here from from uh, bruno latour's uh, idea of uh, uh, debunking uh, impetus of critique and he's very critical of that uh, he says that that um, the, this this a way of always say uh, proposing something behind the phenomenon so for example uh, in illusion uh, is um, is um, he of course uh, problematizes this on an on, on a more epistemological uh, um, level but I am all more interested on on the strategic uh, yeah. maybe more pedagogical uh, right. uh, level how right. would you how would you yeah. respond to that? Yeah. Well, sorry for um, being so critical, by the way. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> That's the project. Um, so, uh, I, you know, um, I, I may not have been expressing myself uh, entirely uh, carefully, but let me let me say two things. Um, the first is that. The idea of a radical theory of illusions that I tried to develop in this book is precisely the idea that it's not as if we are lifting a veil to see the truth. Okay, that has been that is a that is a way of thinking that I I associate with ideology critique and with the early Frankfurt School and with more post-Marxist theories of ideology, that somehow we could lift the veil and then you will see your true interests, right? This notion that there is truth hidden behind there. Um, now, and it's, it's often, I mean, it, it, it most often is associated with the notion of false consciousness, right? In other words, once we, once we lift the veil, we will see you will see that you had a false consciousness that it was wrong and that it wasn't pursuing your real interests. Yeah, that's very um, prominent in Freire, for example. Yes, and that's that's very much, and that's very prominent in Freire because Freire was very classically Marxist in that sense, and 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 depended on a theory of ideology. Now, the the theory of illusions that I'm trying to construct is one in which there is no truth hidden behind the illusion. Um, so there is no way to tell someone, look, look, let me unveil this and now you will see the truth and you can figure out what your true interests are. The theory of illusion I have is that actually you know, we're being mis in, in, often we are ourselves misguided by ideas that we hold and we can loosen them but we're not going to end up in a place of permanent truth or truth for that matter but another place where we'll need to continue to re-examine and think um and so the example i give often in in and in, in in the book maybe but also in 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 the classroom is when you think about uh, simone de beauvoir who was extraordinary with her book, The Second Sex, at unveiling the ways of, uh, of masculine domination uh, between the two sexes uh, at mid-20th century. Uh, the work there was extraordinary. It, it, uh, it, it, uh, it helped to uh, combat uh, um, uh, forms of... Uh, uh, of 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 gender hierarchy uh, and of male superiority. Um, at the same time, though, it didn't reveal a truth. At the same time, what it did, though, is it had a tendency to reify uh, two genders 
um, uh, the feminine and the masculine. And to create a bit of a binary view of gender relations, one, one calling for equality of the sexes, which is necessary, but one that also had a tendency to reify that binary. And I think what we saw in the decades that followed was certainly an appreciation for the notions of equality, but also a skepticism about the binarity of gender. And so queer theory, Judith Butler and others, then I think challenge that notion of binary, create a notion of queerness that is much less, um, it's that, 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 that ambiguates uh, the feminine and the masculine, right? Now, just when you think about it, of course, you you almost couldn't have gotten to notions of queerness if you hadn't first kind of kind of kind of demonstrated and opposed and confronted the uh, kind of male superiority over uh, women that was and and tragically continues. But that was so prevalent uh, in mid twentieth century. You almost couldn't get to to queering until you had first exposed the binarity and the hierarchies and whatnot. And that, in a way, is this idea that I have of illusions that you know the move we're making today is going to be useful for our critical theory and for our praxis for what we're actually doing. Um, but it may also create new problems that we're going to need to untangle. Uh, and so it's in that way that I would try to present this. Not not as if like anybody holds truth or knowledge because we don't. Instead, it's how can we together in our in our exchange uh, of uh, in our solidaristic and and respectful and and equal exchanges question some of our own ideas. That will then knowing that we can make progress while at the same time knowing that we're going to need to, to continue to question wherever we get. And that's the notion of kind of infinite illusions in a way. Um, so I don't know if that's a little bit more helpful in articulating it because I, I agree with you. And, and part of the book is aimed at critiquing this notion that, um, that the debunking leads to a truth and that I or some other critical theory person are the only ones who hold this truth and who can engage in that work. Yeah, that was, that was very helpful. Thank you. Thank you very much for the elaboration. Um, I feel like we've talked a lot now about the first two parts of, of the book, which is really an attempt of, um, collecting many thoughts of the critical tradition. Uh, but I also want to uh, quickly turn to the, the other two parts, which is which are more um, uh, really a description of practices. And uh, the per third part is a very, I felt when reading, a very generous embrace of a huge variety of critical practices and the fourth part is is a is a description of your own practice in part and also i felt sometimes really also turning the the practice of critique into a, an almost an existential question <laughs> um uh, so maybe you can give a give a an outlook on on these two parts Yes, yes, yes. Clearly, um, clearly, we need another hour um, because we've we've been no, no, no. It's me. Uh, uh, we've we've been kind of um, discussing a lot the the critical theory side and the illusion side and the value side. Um, what the book is intended to do is to push critical theory to those uh, two last chapters, to chap to the third part and the fourth part, the the part that deals with. Uh, a praxis and and to push critical theory in the direction of debating challenging 
figuring out, questioning what 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 we must actually uh, do, what what I what I must actually do, and and I go through in part three just a, a number, a large number of different forms of praxis today, from from hacking and and hacktivism and and whistleblowing uh, to forms of uprising. Uh, to uh, also to forms of more uh, what could be considered a conventional uh, political organizing. So, for instance, uh, left populism, which is something that Chantal Mouffe has been arguing for, or possibly the practices of um, of Bernie Sanders uh, in the United States. So, so at one extreme, the, those more um, what are often not thought of as critical practices, but which I think fit perfectly within, from from some perspective, would fit perfectly within a critical uh, theory uh, to the more radical uh, revolutionary uh, uprisings, political disobedience, uh, forms of um, occupations, whether it's at uh, Occupy Wall Street or at Tahrir Square, um, to 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 uh, hunger strikes and other forms of um, self-immolation. So I really, in in the book, I really try to take on a wide panoply of praxises that could form part of a, a, a critical agenda so that we spend more time as critical theorists uh, figuring out what, 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 what is to be done, not in that kind of uh, dogmatic way, not in that kind of prescriptive way, but what 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 we are, what each of us uh, should be doing, whether it's whether it's a whether it's a manifestation, whether it's a um, a form of um, a disobedience that might be um, uh, more relegated to the, the personal realms or to the public realms, or more self transformatory or not. Uh, so, uh, you know, whether it's populist or whether it's, um, you know, or whether it's just, um, um, you know, engaging in, um, in, in what, uh, Sarah Ahmed, uh, calls certain forms of, um, you know, of, 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 uh, of heightened, uh, 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 engagements, uh, uh, in our in our daily lives, so so that's what I what I try to do, and then of course uh, ultimately in the last part I I turn that on on myself and uh, and I look at my own interventions. And often I intervene in the legal sphere because that's because I'm because I have that legal training and I have the ability. So um, I, I'll, I'll uh, right now I'm involved uh, with another attorney, Noah. Uh, Smith Drellick in a lawsuit involving the uh, repression at Standing Rock, but of course the question then becomes: How does that? How does that function? Uh, is that how we should be spending our time? How does it relate to uh, issues of, of political organizing and uh, and and uh, and and those are the questions really uh, that I that I try to address, uh, focusing ultimately on on my own work. Um, I, I personally have had a significant transformation over the past uh, 30 years that I've been doing this work. Um, I, I started more as a civil rights attorney uh, when 30 years ago, uh, and I've become, uh, through a process of engagement and confrontation and readings, and especially reading all of the remarkable abolitionist work from uh, Angela Davis and Dorothy Roberts and Ruth uh, Gilmore and now uh, Mariam Kaba and others. Uh, I have I have become much more of an abolitionist, a democratic thinker, believer in abolition democracy. This notion that Du Bois kind of developed and that was uh, extended to uh, the prison industrial complex, really by Angela Davis and then by other thinkers uh, after her. That has transform the way that I engage in my own praxis. And I try to describe that and talk about it uh, in the book so as to 
just allow for some space uh, for others, I think, to think about their own work and their own actions uh, from a critical theoretic perspective. And I, I must say that th these uh, two parts were also extremely stimulating to read, and I, I really love this generous view of what counts as critical practice, because often I feel that, especially in the the critical uh, sphere, there, there is a lot of divide between what counts as uh, reformist or revolutionarist or, or whatever not. Um, so I really like this, um, your, your generous, generous view. Yeah, uh, we're, we're in a moment right now, actually, in the United States, particularly as a result of the uh, murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others, with an, with an uprising movement of abolition, where these questions really become important, because there is so much animosity within um, circles that have similar ambitions. Uh, about whether you know it's too it's too abolitionist or it's too reformist, and 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 um, and I don't think that that's helpful. I don't think that that kind of excluding excluding and and um, and marginalizing positions because they don't fit the one's own uh, critical perspective is is productive. And so I, I think we need to be generous. What we need to be doing is having conversations, but from a and disagreement and disagreement is, you know, we can't mask that disagreement, but we need to be coming at it from an open and generous perspective. And one in which, you know, other people will be doing other things and that's fine. Um, we just need to figure out, you know, I just need to figure out what I need to be doing. So Bernard, we've taken up a lot of your time uh, with which you could have done yes. different things. So my last question is, what are you currently working on? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the book has, the writing of the book had many consequences for me in terms of, in terms of my own engagements. And, um, and so I, I'm, I'm working on many, on many things. I mean, I continue to, uh, I continue, I mean, Once you're involved in these death penalty cases, you continue with them forever because they 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 last for decades, and and the same is true of Guantanamo case, etc. So I continue with that work, of course. But um, but the the writing of the book has has uh, made me feel as if it's important to create more of a collective uh, um, uh, team, or kind of a. To both think about these issues and engage in praxis, and so I've been um, helping put together uh, uh, a, a, the initiative for a just society, um, which is bringing on uh, remarkable abolitionists, uh, thinkers, and practitioners. Uh, right now, Che Gossett is joining us, who is a as a scholar in residence, who's a remarkable, um, uh, challenging. Uh, uh, queer uh, abolitionist thinker and um, Omavi Shakur, who is a practitioner who's joining us as well, uh, who has been litigating these uh, police shooting cases. And so uh, putting together a team to, to really work together as almost as a cooperative and, um, and, and, and figure out how to challenge the punitive society most effectively. And, and at an intellectual critical theoretic perspective, I've been working most on notions of cooperation, which um, I think is, 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 is prevalent in a lot of the uh, abolitionist writings. Uh, actually, the notion of cooperation, cooperatives, was something that Du Bois himself wrote about at the same time in 1935, uh, as he was writing Black Reconstruction in America. He wrote a, a small essay called uh, A Negro Nation Within the Nation, where he had this vision of a kind of a separatist, uh, cooperative uh, African American um, uh, society, uh, but built on cooperatives, and and so I've been I've been working with that notion with cooperation uh, and trying to see how that might be a, a way forward as well. So those are the those are the projects I'm um, uh, that, have, that that in part have grown out of this book. And that I am 
struggling with um, confronting uh, with critical theory all the time, but struggling and 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 trying to um, well, let me just say propose right <laughs> in that way that I think we must uh, propose and build and construct uh, institutions uh, that would make it possible uh, for all of us to be on on equal footing uh, and to be full citizens. Uh, so those are, those are a couple of the projects and, and I've, I've carried it through this year a lot through this um, series of uh, conversations and uh, debates and, and, um, and interventions that I've called abolition democracy 1313, which is, uh, has been going on all year and basically has been looking at all of the different movements for uh, abolition uh, whether it's movements uh, to abolish the police or the prison or family regulation, uh, what used to be called or what still is called child welfare system, which is tragically not uh, at all about child welfare, but also looking at the abolition of oil and borders and capital. And um, and so we've, we've had a full year uh, with 13 different uh, conversations about uh, these issues and how to bring in cooperation and how to work towards a just society. So those are the things that I've been doing this year. And in, in large part, they all really grow out of uh, this book, uh, Critique and Praxis. Well, Bernard, that sounds both uh, politically uh, and intellectually very stimulating. Thank you very much for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you, Kai. This has been a great conversation for me, really helpful at thinking through these issues. And, and I've, enjoyed, I've enjoyed the critique of, of, uh, of, of critical theory as well that we've been having. Thank you. Thank you.